in this episode of the Unfold the Soul Bless His Heart Leadership Podcast. Even in the midst of the greatest grind, sometimes you get a phone call that just brings you high levels of joy. Girl, he reads from these journals he kept when he was a principal. Uncut and uncensored, putting all his business in the street. The podcast, bless his heart. The name, Ken Williams. With the long drive home, I did not write about my second day in Tallahassee. But here's a recap. Things were going okay until I received a call from Dr. Jack Klugman, the head of a central office department. He called to ask me if I would support the staff member moving to Lovejoy High School. I paused then as I'm pausing now. I almost pissed my pants with joy. The last piece of the iceberg that sunk the Titanic was now gone. My number of dead was now at 30. I moved about six people in, in two years in my last principalship at Damascus and thought I was doing something. Here in my first year at Swint, I have 30, 30. I have to acknowledge some of the strategic moves that I've made, but there are some other moves as well. Some made moves just because it was time. Others I got support on. In any case, I'm, I'm pleased and I'm excited about the possibilities. This will be a brand new school when the new year begins in August. Right, baby let's get into it let me give you my caveat first before you end this episode talking about how i just came down with the damn hammer and just running folk ass out of here that's not the case this episode is going to focus on when you know as a leader it's time for folk to leave like when you know when you've been through the motions, you've provided the support, you've provided the feedback, you've been unvarnished in your feedback, you've been generous in the support you provided, and it's just time. It doesn't mean they're bad people or even bad educators. It's just, it's just time. Sometimes a location just wears its welcome out. And so what we're talking about today is when you know it's time now i'm not going to even begin to try to tell you that you know i've just uh had this leadership paradigm where i just you know i'm able to just cut people loose and move people out of position when they prove themselves ineffective i know i had to grow into this you know it was a muscle i had to build and you know i've said to you before i'm a people pleaser at my core but i'm going to share a quote with you that the the late Dr. Rick DeFore laid on me years ago and just just hit me in the gut. And every time I heard it, it was just a, just a kick to the gut. And that is this. He said, a leader's effectiveness can be measured by the worst behavior they're willing to tolerate. 
the worst behavior they're willing to tolerate. When I heard that, I was at a school where I was making changes, things were going well, but I'm not gonna lie to you, sometimes the people part of this business will wear your ass out and I was tired and I I made some really strong moves, but there was still some, uh, you know, uh, lingering dysfunction and I wasn't as urgent about it early on. But when I heard that quote, man, that's the kind of quote that would just make me lose sleep, especially having gotten to know Rick personally. He walked his talk. That's the thing. It's not like he came up with a clever quote that uh, just got you to think he walked his talk. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what was going on with those with that body count of 30 and I'm glad I wrote down that, you know, because I don't, I, I'm glad I just spoke the truth when I wrote this damn journal. I mean, I only kept it because of my mentor, like I've mentioned a hundred times. So there's no reason to lie. But I'm, I'm glad I actually wrote that. Some people were moved because of moves I made and others were moved because of moves they made. And sometimes I got support in some ways. Um, but, but, but here's the deal. As the leader, you cannot let mediocrity thrive. It, it just, it just isn't. Like your your job there is not to have a hundred percent approval rating and likability. And this time of year, when you're having to, you know, turn staff over, or throughout the year when you're evaluating people and having to be truthful about it, it's it's hard. It's hard, especially if you're relational because you're getting to know people, and that's the last thing I'm going to talk about. You you can't have that get in the way. That's the problem and so a couple of logistical things I'll tell you early on and I learned this in my first principalship the hard way is you got to be organized you got to be organized whether you are in a strong uh, uh, union state with very complex contracts or what, doesn't matter there are protocols to evaluating people providing support documenting uh, their performance and you got to watch your timelines. And I was not great at that early on, man. And I was a guy I would miss the damn timeline by a day or uh, forget some form that I was supposed to fill out. And it, it, it definitely saddled me. It saddled me with a couple of custodians that just, I mean, if I look at a couple of areas like this jump out at me in terms of like my, my failures in leadership, I never got it together with the custodians. I just never had a great team and I think that's why I bow to them when I consult with schools now and I go into a place, especially when the place has got some age on it and it looks like a like a jewel. Like I seek out the building services team and, and, and give them a compliment. But you got to be organized. You got to know your timelines. More importantly, you got to be willing to put pen to paper, man. You got to put pen to paper. You're the only, you're the person in the building who can make that happen. And I know you're the only person in your position and it can be lonely sometimes and it sucks not being liked, but that's what you signed up for. There is no mystery to that. You got to be willing to put pen to paper. Understand your timelines. And I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. With 30 vacancies at the poorest performing school in the district, which has become the poorest performing district in the greater Atlanta area. 
I'm not going to be sitting on my ass just uh, receiving resumes all summer. I'm not going to be getting calls. I'm not getting any calls. I got no calls. No one called and said, can I come work at your school? No one called to ask if we had openings. So the, the, the prospect of 30 was on the one hand exhilarating because I knew we were going to have a new staff for the most part when school began again in August, but scary as hell also because I'm no longer at a school in a district where, you know, the district is highly sought after and teachers want to come and work there. I mean, I'm at a place, man, where I got to go out and get them. And then when I, like the Venus flytrap, when I get them in the office, get that kneecap to kneecap interview, man, I got to close them if they're good. And I went through a lot of shit, a lot of resumes, a lot of shitty educators to really find some good ones and close them. But you got to be willing to take the risk. And I remember saying that to myself because I'm not going to lie to you. It was scary as hell to have 30 vacancies. But I kept saying to myself, I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to take my chances. And that is, uh, and I'm not saying this to make myself look like a hero or anything like that, but that's countercultural. That that's counterintuitive to our wiring as humans. You know, we we like safety. We like things that we're sure about. And as dysfunctional as many members of my staff were, was I, I knew it. Like, and, and so many, I see so many leaders settle for the devil they know versus the devil they don't know, which is you know, engaging in the hiring process, which I'm going to tell you right now, it took all damn summer, all damn summer, all damn summer. But I, I took the chance. The last thing I'll say about this is what I find often gets in the way too often from a leadership perspective. I understand when teachers think this way, but when leaders think this way, it's really dangerous. Now, one of the toughest parts about moving people along is the fact that they're human and they have lives and I understand that and that's the part that um, while it was a challenge to navigate I would not let that stop me I didn't care what the situation was and I don't see enough of that in the field I don't see enough of that again when it's a peer Listen, I, I, I get it. You know, fat teachers come to me and said, well, you know, she's got two kids in college and, you know, they got a second house up on the lake and a lot of debt or, you know, or, you know, husband's left her and she's single and blah. blah. I get it. I get it. I get it. What I find ironic is it's almost never about the job performance. It's always about the fallout from, you know, Evaluating them out of of the position, like I've 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 rarely had people come and advocate for an underperforming colleague and have their advocacy be about their work. (laughs) It's rare when someone's like, you know, I'm going to work this person all summer and I'm going to get her coached up and I'm going to be responsible. I've never. What I get is. Well, you know, it's been hard. Uh, she's got a lot going on. Got no family in the area. Like all these things. And you know what I had to I had to build a muscle around? I would listen to those things. I would empathize. But then I would think about who is left in the wake. And you know who's left in the wake? 
the people who can least afford it are students. Defenseless, they have no recourse. They don't get to say, well, I don't want that shitty, I don't want that shitty teacher. <laughs> I don't want that shitty school or the shitty principal. They don't get to say that. So they're left completely, completely exposed. And that's what I thought about. I thought about another group of kids, another class of kids getting a whole year of whatever the levels of ineffectiveness or dysfunction was. Like, that's what I thought about. And that helped me overcome my, you know, my sometimes my angst about putting people in awkward positions. Uh, now, listen, I'm, I'm much less, I'm sympathetic, but I'm not, well, wait a minute. I'm empathetic, but I'm not sympathetic <laughs> since that time, you know, because I've always had entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I, you know, I, I don't work for anyone now. I have my own company. I jumped out there and I'm not saying that that's what everybody has to do, but here's, here's what I mean by that. And this is what I say to people all the time. This is America. This is America. I say this to unhappy people, unhappy educators, uh, curmudgeony, bitter ass educators who just feel put upon. I was like, this is America. What do we, what do you do? There are countries where your destiny is determined by your birth. Here, while this country is not perfect, we know that there's no such thing as perfection. It's America. And we can shape our destiny if we're willing to put in the work. So I have no zero sympathy for people in their personal situations because more times than not, your own performance or lack thereof puts you in that situation. So it's hard for me. So I'm not going to sacrifice kids because you got a lot of debt while being a, a, a shitty educator, an underperforming teacher, underperforming staff member, underperforming parapro. I'm not going to, no. Because all I think about is those, that parade of kids that has to walk in and endure that, knowing that they'll never learn as much as they can learn. They'll never be all they can be in that environment. And it's often the kids who can least afford it because their parents are either stretched thin or they may come from dysfunctional households or dealing with outside circumstances that get in the way of the parents being completely involved, right? It's rare when this happens. It's rare that it happens to kids whose parents can like, you know, kids like come from yours and homes like yours and mine can turn around and get a tutor. It's always the kids that suffer. And that's what I think about. That's what I think about. I watch these kids walk past me and I say to myself, I've got to represent them. And that's what you've got to do as a leader. As hard as it is, as tough as it is, this is America. You can change careers. You can change jobs. You can move from city to city. You can move from state to state. Does it happen in a snap? No. But the opportunity is there. And we do students a complete disservice and we do ourselves a disservice. And it eats away at our leadership integrity when we tolerate when we tolerate underperformance and we don't make the moves to get it done. I learned early on, you know, when I watch principals every once in a while commiserating about a colleague, you know, commiserating about a, a, a teacher on their staff that they wish would make different choices or or transfer. And they're, and they're commiserating with other staff members who aren't their peers. That blows my mind. So I'm thinking to myself, principal, you're complaining about that third grade teacher 
to the fourth grade team, they're listening to you. They're giving you all the body language, the head shaking, the uh, the tacit agreement. But when it when the room gets quiet, they're going to think to themselves, this is a reflection on you, leader. Dysfunctional staff is a reflection on you and you got to own that. So that understand that difference with leadership empathy and leadership sympathy. I have tons of empathy. I have no sympathy for underperformance. None. Because our kids have no recourse. And so we as educators have to have that extra layer of moral imperative to make sure we're putting in front of our kids the best equipped adults with the best attitude, the best habits of mind, the best habits of practice to make that happen. And when we get evidence to the contrary, we get evidence to the contrary. We got to put pen to paper, baby. Put pen to paper. Get your love at home. Rick used to tell us, get your love at home by a dog. Start with the crown. My book, Ruthless Equity, Disrupt the Status Quo and Ensure Learning for All Students is out. It has been met with phenomenal response. I know this is less than humble, but uh, I prayed on it. And listen, our kids can't afford me to be humble. This book needs to be in the hands of every single educator without question. And that's not about selling books. That's about impact. I can make you one solid promise when you read this book. You will not utter the phrase, this book reminds me of another book I read. You will not utter that phrase. Ruthless Equity is my defining work. It's everything I believe, everything I know. It will change the game. It clarifies equity, which has been pulled in 500,000 different directions. So pick up your copy now. You can find it on Amazon.com. Just search Ruthless Equity, Ken Williams. Or I've got a large amount of demand for signed copies. If you want a signed copy of Ruthless Equity, go to my website, unfoldthesoul.com. Go to the store in the menu tab and Order Ruthless Equity from my website. You'll see this information in in the notes as well. Lastly, for schools and districts that would like to order 20 or more copies of Ruthless Equity, I am offering a 20% discount. That's 20% off of the list price if you order 20 copies or more. To do that, go to unfoldthesoul.com slash bulk 20 the number two zero unfoldthesoul.com slash bulk two zero get your copy of ruthless equity today it is a game changer baby
On the next episode of the Unfold of Soul, bless his heart, leadership podcast, as exhausting as this work of leadership can be, there's something powerful and invigorating about the moment the smoke begins to clear. You've been listening to the Unfold the Soul, Bless His Heart podcast with Ken Williams. For more information about Ken, visit unfoldthesoul.com.